Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. I'm sure you guys are all enjoying this great weather. I, close to the Chicagoland area, we had uh, some pretty decent snow out here, and now we're getting in ready for the frigid cold and the wind. So I will warn you because if I disappear, it might be because the internet uh, might be going out because of this. But don't worry, the show keeps going on as long as one of us still has good internet. <laughs> Uh, we're joining you live on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook Live, X, and Instagram. So if you're watching us there, welcome to the show. Also, you YouTubers, hit that subscribe button. We're doing great. I mentioned we became a YouTube creator when we hit that thousand mark. So I thought I'd share with you some of the information that I get from YouTube. So they sent me this little thing recently about our last month, how we did. Doing great. Also, I'd like to announce a new sponsor for the show. Yuri Cap, the Tilicare company, they did episode 43. So if you want more information about the company, you can always check that episode out. But thanks for being a sponsor. Also, the best place to go if you're new to the show is to our Euronurse.com website, where you can learn more information about the show, including different features that are available, um, visit sponsors, etc. It's also the best place to go to watch all of our past episodes. And yes, we've got 75 of those coming up. Want to listen to us in your car? No problem. Check out our audio podcast. Go to our Euronurse Plus area where you can listen to us on any of your favorite uh, formats. Also, we do have a newsletter that comes out every week, every Monday. If you're not getting it, go to our website and subscribe. If you're watching us live and you have a question, that's what the comment box is for. You can submit your comments, questions, hey, compliments. We'll take it all in that little box. This week, we've got a great show. Christy Craig is going to be joining us. She's going to be speaking about kidney stones, everything there is to know about kidney stones. So with that, we're going to go ahead and bring all of our experts in here and bring in them all in. Hey, we did it. <laughs> all right. Um, my name is Vic Sidis. I'm the host and producer of the show. Been involved in urology for the past 40 years. Um, just uh, wanted to... Sometimes, you know, we, we like to have interesting stories and stuff. I've got a quick story I'm going to tell. We just recently got back from Florida where a large amount of my family was for Christmas. And we were talking, uh, my daughter's pregnant with her second child. And so we were talking some pregnancy stories and reliving our, our first pregnancy. And my wife was talking about how um, when when the we had our first child and, and she her water broke, she thought she had wet her pants because she didn't realize it was her water that broke. Well, I had just gotten off my OB rotation when I, uh, uh, prior to that, it was my last rounding that I, or last thing I had to do for nursing. And so I had everything set. Soon as she did, I says, I got a slide out and I got a little sample and I had a microscope in my office. So I put it under the scope. I said, nope, I see ferning. That's not, that's the amniotic fluid. So, hey, you know, your nurses do things a little different, right? All righty. That's my interesting story. So it was fun to share that at this uh, holiday party. John, I saw you just sneak in here. How you doing? Looks like you're warm. Well, it is a little bit cold by Arizona standards. Hello, yeah. everyone. Uh, my name is John Lynn. I'm a urologist in Gilbert, Arizona, which is just a little bit south of Phoenix. And like what Vic is doing, I am paying it forward by sharing what little I know about the clinical and business aspects of urology among my peers. And I, at, in order to do that, I created a Facebook group called the Thriving Urology Practice Facebook group, 
where we crowdsource practice management solutions for everyone's benefit, and it is all for free. The story that I have, hmm, nothing, nothing really exciting. I want to say that starting January 1st, 2024, which is now almost two weeks, there are three codes, three billing codes that people, people can use. G2211, 99459, and remember to use place of service 10 for your telemedicine visits. And if you want to learn more about G2211, I created two videos on YouTube that you can uh, watch. As with anything Medicare related, it sometimes can be a little confusing. <laughs> so good luck. Back to you, Vic. All righty. Andrea. Hi, good morning. My name is Andrea Strong. I'm a nurse practitioner. Before I get into my introduction, I just wanted to say hi to some of our other participants this morning. So we got good morning from two from Chicago, one from New Mexico, one from Houston, and they're saying it's cold weather down in Houston even. I'm up in the winter wonderland of Wisconsin. It's absolutely beautiful up here. We're really happy to have a bunch of snow. Um, but my introduction is that I'm a nurse practitioner. I have worked in urology for a long time, since 2010. I worked as a nurse for a long time as well. I've done inpatient, I've done outpatient. I'm certified as a urology registered nurse. I'm also the educational director the Chicago Metro chapter of the Society of Urologic Nurses and Associates, and I'm one of the board of directors for the um, National SUNA. I do have a story that came to mind regarding stones. I had a patient once who had a small distal ureteral stone, I think it was three millimeters, and he purposely went on some roller coasters because he heard or read or Googled something that, that could help him pass kidney stones, and he did pass it, and he swears it's from the roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. I don't know. Maybe Christy will have something to say about roller coasters and kidney stones. Christy, go ahead and give you your introduction. We'll Hi, good morning. I'm Christy Krieg. I'm in Indianapolis, so also a pretty cold and windy and snowy place today. Um, I have been working in urology since 1999. I was an OR nurse before that. And my mentor is Jim Lingaman, who has a long history in stone treatment, uh, BPH, um, stone disease. And so he's been my mentor and has always answered every silly question that I have. Um, I still have questions about stone disease that I take to him occasionally. So um, I'm a nurse practitioner. I'm a certified urologic nurse practitioner. I'm the current treasurer of Sabuna, which is the certification board for urologic nurses and the president elect. Um, and so I've been doing stones for 25 years. I really appreciate um, the invitation to give a brief compressed 30 minute talk on stone disease. So I can't cover everything, Vic, but I'll do the best I can. And as I was talking to you earlier, we're always glad to have you back for more. Thank you. All righty. Well, go ahead. It's all yours. Super. So um, Vic actually gave me the title for my slide. We're going to um, just briefly today in 30 minutes run through a bunch of quick things. I have one financial disclosure, which is here. Um, I just want to talk first about why kidney stone prevention is so important. So we see kidney stone patients in a really short period of time when they're suffering and um, trying to pass a stone, or maybe they've got a stent in. And so, of course, they have pain, nausea, vomiting. But between their visits to us, there's loss of productivity. There's a lot of stress and anxiety. People are worried about traveling with a stone or what's going to happen, you know, if I start passing a stone when I'm overseas. 
Um, these patients get a lot of excessive radiation exposure from recurrent um, repeat CT scans. Uh, they can even have acute or chronic kidney disease, of course, urosepsis with an obstructing stone in the presence of infection, and even death. So again, we see them briefly, but stone disease is really a lifelong um, uh, condition with lots of consequences. So prevention is really important. Um, recurrence rates are uh, approximately described here. This is kind of some old data. But um, this basically speaks to the fact that if a patient is younger and they're, if they're a child or teen or young adult, you know, their recurrence rate in their lifetime is long. So definitely offer prevention measure and evaluation to um, younger patients especially. Um, in this talk, we're going to speak briefly about uh, some key resources that you can recur, return to later for reading more about stone disease, because obviously in uh, what's left, 22 minutes, I can't cover it all. We're going to talk about evaluating um, patients with metabolic stones, uh, stone types, risk factors, general dietary recommendations that you can offer to anybody. And then we're going to briefly discuss some um, treatment, some brief concepts about surgical treatment for stones. So, of course, uh, the first and most key resource are uh, widely available clinical guidelines from the American Urologic Association. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with these, but uh, basically they're guidelines that are um, written by a group of experts. It involves a meta-analysis of literature, and there are frequent updates to these. So we all know that medical science changes, so we can rely on the AUA and these panels to um, update guidelines as needed. I believe the medical guidelines are, are currently being reevaluated now. And um, again, as I'm sure you're familiar, there are levels of evidence. So for each guideline, there will be an application of a level of evidence, A, B, or C, relative to the um, certainty and quality of evidence that's available. And then sometimes you'll see reference to an expert opinion. So maybe the data doesn't support it, but all these experts say, you know, gosh, this is what we all do and we Reference think it's the expert. right thing. And so um, you'll see those different levels of evidence. As you're reading these guidelines, tune into terms such as you, you may do this as a urology provider or you should do this or you must do this. That also speaks to the strength of the recommendation from the panel. So uh, I'm not going to go through all these guidelines, obviously, but they are available. They are free on the auanet.org website. And the 27 guidelines for medical management fall into four categories, evaluation, diet therapies, pharmacologic therapies, and follow-up. We're not going to have time for pharmacologic therapies and the metabolic workup, um, but I'd be happy to talk about that at a later date, or I have some other lectures out there you might reference. Another really great resource for patients and providers is uh, Fred Coe at the University of Chicago. He has a lot of excellent articles that um, hold no prisoners in terms of what he thinks, you know, is appropriate and accurate. And kind of, it's kind of his Fred Coe's meta-analysis. They're also pragmatic and funny and, and a good read. So those are some other, re another resource that you could turn to. Um, and then, of course, there are also surgical guidelines from the AUA um, pertaining to these categories. So imaging, uh, treatment of adults, treatment of pediatric patients, and also special population, how do we treat pregnant women with stones? Okay, so I want to turn now to risk factors for stones. Well, who, who can we expect might develop stones? Uh, patients who are chronically dehydrated, and that could be a factor of their occupation. So if, a, if a, somebody works um, paving roads all summer long, you can bet they're going to be perspiring a lot and probably chronically dehydrated. So um, environmental factors, uh, family history, um, cysteine is certainly a genetic completely genetic stone disease, but calcium oxalate stones um, also run in families primarily through 
um, familial hypercalciuria. Uh, people who eat certain types of foods, high purine diet or high oxalate could be at risk. And also really Americans who we all eat too much salt, right? So high sodium intake is a certainly a strong risk factor. And then um, some patients are using excessive dietary supplements. Vitamin D, vitamin C, calcium could be risk factors as well. Um, there are also a number of medical conditions that can put patients at risk. And um, some of these you may uncover in your evaluation of patients with stone disease. But basically, if you have a patient with bowel disease or bone disease or gout, this is going to really help you understand that they're at a unique um, risk of forming stones based on these other medical conditions. Um, particularly be alert to patients with a history of gastric bypass, because that malabsorption can put them at risk of um, hyperoxaluria primarily that can result in stone disease. Obesity is a big one too. So we're going to talk about that independently on another slide. So I thought this was such an interesting bit of information. So um, the risk of stones goes up in obese patients, no matter how you look at obesity, whether you measure it by BMI, waist circumference, weight, or weight gain, all of those factors associated with obesity increase the risk for stone disease. And you can see that the, the darker pink line on the far right is women who are obese, whereas the orange line is men who are obese compared to the healthy cohort. So the point is that this, um, that obesity puts women at even higher risk of stone disease than it does for men. And of course, we've, we used to say that stone disease was a disease mostly of men. It's really not that way anymore, right? Men and women um, are at risk of stones. Um, so there are so many important factors about the principles of stone formation, <clears throat> but I think that um, Clayman, Patel, and Pearl really break it down in a, in a simple form. They have a, an article that you could reference, which is in my um, references called the stone tree. And they talk about three categories of causation, which we all know, but I think it's just really helpful to break it down in this manner. So the first cause is this, what I call the stuff that makes stones, right? What makes stones? The amount of calcium, the amount of oxalate, the amount of uric acid in the urine. So how much of that stuff is coming out of the urine, coming into the urine on a daily basis, on a 24-hour basis. And then we have things that inhibit stones. Um, they didn't mention magnesium, but some people do believe magnesium is an inhibitor of stones. The primary, the primary um, inhibitor is citrate. So what makes stones, what inhibits stones, and then there are things that promote stone growth, pH. So some stones form in a more alkaline environment. Some stones form in a more acid environment, which we'll discuss briefly. Sodium excess, metabolic syndrome, and of course, supersaturation. So supersaturation basically refers to all the stuff being concentrated in the urine to a point where it precipitates right? And where the urine can no longer keep those things in suspension, you have supersaturation and precipitation essentially. And that, the, that forms crystals and then the crystals form stones. So everything that we're doing in terms of stone prevention is going to target one of these, one of these factors, something that makes stones, something that inhibits stones, inhibits stones, or something that promotes stone growth. So if we're going to interrupt um, or, or um, intervene in any of those factors, it's we can increase the solvent. So basically dilute all these things, um, reduce the stuff or the solute, introduce inhibitors, change the pH. And then the question of stasis, such as with a UPJ obstruction is um, debatable. So most patients with stasis also have a problem with one of those other factors contributing to stone disease. 
So I want to turn now to um, medical management and prevention. So if you have a patient who presents with stones, um, there are a number of um, um, data points and test results that will be helpful to you as you help them prevent their stones from recurring. So the first thing is to get a stone analysis, if at all possible. Um, you can often get a 24-hour urine study and see that somebody's actually at risk of forming maybe uric acid and calcium oxalate or calcium oxalate and calcium phosphate stones. But having the stone analysis, what did this patient actually form is going to help you uh, narrow things down a little bit. Um, you can get a simple measure of pH through a UA. If you think they're having infections or you think they might be having a struvite stone, you're going to check a urine culture for specifically for urea splitting organisms such as Proteus pseudomonas and some Klebsiella's. Um, of course, you're going to be checking their kidney function and electrolytes, evaluating for a possibility of type 1 RTA, and also serum calcium. If they have an elevated serum calcium, you're going to be clued in, gosh, this patient could have hyperparathyroidism, which um, you're not going to fix any stone disease if the patient has hyperparathyroidism. So do not fail to recognize hypercalcemia. Make sure you follow up with an intact parathyroid hormone. And of course, um, get them surgical treatment for their hyperparathyroidism if they're found to have that. Um, so the, the three metabolic stone types and uh, the factors that can um, promote growth of these specific stone types um, are listed here. So calcium oxalate, primarily associated with low volume, so um, concentrated urine, low citrate, and then too much calcium oxalate or hyperuricosuria. So too much uric acid in the urine can also promote calcium oxalate growth. So that's something to keep in mind um, as you're looking at 24-hour urine studies. Calcium phosphate, including brushite, which is a very hard form of calcium phosphate, very difficult to fragment. Uh, those stones form in a more alkaline urine pH. So you may see pH in these patients in the 6.9, 7.2 range. If you see pH like that, you're going to be cluing into the possibility of uh, brushite or calcium phosphate stones. And to an extent, this also requires hypercalciuria, so too much calcium in the urine. Um, in contrast, uric acid stones form when the urine pH is very low, um, which you might see more likely in diabetic patients. So if you have a patient whose pH is in the five range, um, very likely they're more at risk of forming uric acid stones because uric acid stones require an acidic pH of the urine. And these can occur with or without hyperuricosuria. So whether the patient has too much uric acid or not, if the urine is acid, they're going to be more likely at risk of forming uric acid stones. Um, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this at all, but be alert to cysteine, which is a hereditary form of um, stones that usually presents in childhood, and struvite, which is, again, going to be associated with those uh, urea-splitting organisms that you can identify on culture. And these are going to be fast-growing stones that produce staghorn-shaped stones in many patients. Okay, so as you're approaching the patient with stones and you want to start talking about uh, general recommendations um, versus am I going to offer this patient 24-hour um, urine studies, which are extremely helpful at targeting the metabolic abnormality for your individual patient. But not everybody is, is um, you know, is game for that. So, sorry. Uh, oh, I lost. Sorry. Um, so one of my slides I'm not seeing here, so I'm just going to go back here for a second. So um, the people that we would recommend 24-hour uh, urine studies to would certainly include 
children or young adults with stones, as we mentioned. So those patients have a long life ahead of them of forming stones. And so you definitely want to offer or even encourage 24-hour urine studies um, to really focus prevention and get them on medication if they need it for stone prevention. Um, I, I will say, though, that I've stopped really pressuring patients. <laughs> if a patient is not motivated to pursue 24-hour urine tests, and if they say, eh, you know, even if you told me I needed a chronic medication for my stone disease, I'm not going to take it, you know, meet the patient where they are. Recognize that some patients are not going to be motivated. Maybe with a future stone event, they would be more motivated. But um, certainly for children, for people with recurrent stones, large stones, multiple stones, um, those are the patients you're going to really offer that further evaluation to versus general recommendations. So the general recommendations for your first time stone patient, maybe somebody you're not planning to perform 24 hour urine studies on or they're not motivated, um, lots of fluids, right? We talked about diluting the urine, so tons of fluids. And the goal is to achieve a pale colored urine 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the goal is at least 2.5 liters of output per day. Now, of course, your patients aren't gonna be measuring their urine every day, um, but just helping them clue into, well, how much are you drinking? How much are you perspiring? Do you live in Arizona like Dr. Lynn or do you live in a humid place you know, like Florida? So living in a, in, in a desert environment, you're just losing water all the time. So patients in certain um, environments or with certain occupations, as we talked about, are going to have to drink 3.5, four liters or more to achieve this 2.5 liters of output. So I just advise them, you know, your urine should be a pale colored urine 24 hours a day. You can also recommend to any patient a normal calcium intake. Calcium restriction is not recommended, um, for, even for calcium oxalate stone formers. And this is a, a misunderstanding, and I believe some urologists are still telling people, or maybe people who had stones 20 years ago were told, yeah, really, you're eating too much dairy. That is not it. So um, all the recommendations are people should achieve the recommended daily allowance for, stone, uh, for calcium intake. Definitely everybody can benefit from a restricted sodium diet, right? We all know we eat too much salt. It's in everything. And with eating out a lot, of course, it's even worse. Um, a 2,500 or 2,000 milligram intake per day is pretty restrictive. It's very challenging. Patients who are going to achieve this goal are probably people who are able to cook at home and prepare most of their own foods. Um, also limiting purine, so not too much meat intake. Plenty of um, fruits and vegetables to counteract that. But limited purine and then avoiding obesity and overeating. We talked, we saw that graph about how um, obesity is associated with stone disease. That's important for any patient. And we know that's probably one of the primary drivers of stone disease, right? We know obesity is going up and so is stone disease. So basically you can recommend to folks um, the DASH diet plus extra water. So hydration and the DASH diet. Well, what is the DASH diet? Many of us are familiar with this. It, it really was a, a diet that was created to approach hypertension and uh, lots of information on the web about this, but it's primarily a plant-based diet with lots of fruits, vegetables, and nuts, and I want to mention that about oxalates. Um, it does include low-fat and non-fat dairy, again, healthy for stone formers even, healthy fats, lean meats, and whole grains. So if you're if you say, well, what am I supposed to eat? Your patient says, just direct them to information about the DASH diet. So uh, this study that was published by Curran and his colleagues back in pretty old 2013 um, basically found that DASH diet uh, followers had a lower incidence of stones. They actually had more 
calcium oxalate, citrate, magnesium, potassium, pH, and volume. However, it resulted in a decreased supersaturation of calcium oxalate and uric acid. So um, basically there's very good evidence that the DASH diet can prevent stones. So just a reminder of what not to recommend to your stone formers from a dietary perspective. You do not want to recommend calcium restriction. The Atkins or paleo diets are not great for stone formers. I also do not recommend to patients that they restrict oxalates in the diet unless we have 24-hour urine studies proving that they have hyperoxaluria because oxalates are found in many healthy foods, spinach, nuts, beans, chocolate, black tea, those are healthy foods. And many patients with calcium oxalate stones, it's not oxalates that are the problem. So I don't recommend oxalate restriction in the diet unless we are confident they have hyperoxaluria. I also would caution against um, recommending any over-the-counter stone prevention supplements. There are about 12 of them out there, maybe maybe not that many, maybe eight of them out there. Um, they're not very well um, quality control could be an issue. I won't go into all the details, but Dr. Coe has a great article comparing all the over-the-counter stone prevention supplements um, and offering some caution about that. So, um, oh, here's the slide I was looking for before. So again, you're going to recommend this dedicated stone risk profile with 24-hour urine studies for new patients with stones, multiple stones, um, motivated patients, and younger patients. I just want to show you a single screenshot of what the 24-hour urine looks like. Other talks that I give, we go through many of these um, as case examples. But basically, this is um, one um, company that offers this. You can see the things on the right are the things that are increasing the risk of stones. So their volume is very poor. If you just look at the first line, their volume's poor, 0.56 liters. What's the goal? 2.5, right? That's terrible. And this gives you a super saturation of calcium oxalate. So their super saturation of calcium oxalate and uric acid are both elevated. But again, this is in the presence of normal calcium excretion, normal oxalate excretion, normal uric acid excretion. So for this patient, hydration is gonna be extremely helpful. But when you get these results, if you're using a lab that does stone disease um, exclusively, they're gonna give you some clues at the bottom of the page about how to um, interpret these results and they have experts available to you as well. Okay, I've just got a couple minutes left. I wanna briefly talk about um, stone treatment. So um, one of our experts mentioned, you know, passage of a three millimeter stone. Uh, this is just a brief chart about, well, how, how likely is this patient to pass a stone if they present with a ureteral stone? As you can see, um, as the stone gets larger up in the five to seven millimeter range in the ureter, uh, the likelihood of passage, you know, diminishes. So um, we generally say in our practice, if you've got a six millimeter stone or smaller, probably worth giving a trial of passage. Um, if it's especially somebody who's never passed a stone before, then the larger the stone is, you know, the less likely we are to give them much as much of trial of passage. Um, there's also um, in evidence that the location when it's diagnosed is relevant to passage. So if it's already reached the ureterovesical junction all the way down by the bladder, higher likelihood of passing than if it's, uh, you know, initially diagnosed up in the proximal ureter up at the UPJ. So for symptom management uh, for stone expulsion, it's not at all uncommon for men and women to be initiated on Tamsulose. And this is technically off-label. So if you're gonna prescribe this for your patients, 
You may want to mention that it's off-label and it's kind of of questionable utility. Um, the, the concept is that it relaxes both the bladder neck in men and women, but more importantly, the ureterovesical junction, which is you know part of the trigone um, and may help pass only really distal ureteral stones. I don't put patients on tamsulosin for a stone at the UPJ um, unless we think it's migrated down to um, the lower ureter. Anti-inflammatories have a pretty important role in assisting with both symptoms. And I would say diclofenac is what we're using mostly um, in patients because this has become part of our protocols for non-narcotic non, um, non management of stone patients. So diclofenac is pretty commonly used. Uh, you might offer antiemetics. And then, you know, narcotics are really obviously falling out of favor. You don't need to hear that from me, but um, we're finding that um, patients can get by quite nicely with non-narcotic options. And I want to reference this article from 2018 in which they compared patients with renal colic and they put half of them on a narcotic-free um, regimen and half of them on um, a regimen with kind of the more traditional hydrocodone. And um, of these patients who had um, ureteroscopy, only 10% of the narcotic-free group ultimately received narcotics. So through use of antispasmodics plus anti-inflammatories um, and antiemetics, we can get patients through these stone events without narcotics. And the ultimate goal is, you know, that leaves many fewer pills just out there floating around in people's medicine cabinets. Um, so big push, of course, for non-narcotic management of renal colic in patients who are passing stones as well as patients who are having <clears throat> surgery. Um, so just briefly uh, a note about when you want to intervene surgically. So uh, of course we talked about being able to predict a little bit whether the likelihood of a patient to pass a stone. Um, again, smaller stones more likely to pass, distal stones more likely to pass, but you're definitely gonna intervene surgically in a patient with sepsis, fever, compromised renal function, um, you know, emesis that won't quit, or um, they just, it's not made much progress over the period of time that you've been watching them. Um, as you consider um, surgical intervention, of course, um, the, the, the most common um, current interventions probably are ureteroscopy or percutaneous nephrolithotomy. Um, rarely are we going to do open surgery. This, I've, I, you know, I've been in urology 25 years. It was in Africa when I was working um, with my my group in um, Eldoret, Kenya, that I saw my first open pyelolithotomy for a stone in Eldoret, Kenya. So we obviously don't do that much anymore. Um, ureteroscopy and, and PNL are the most common things or temporizing measures such as a stent or a nephrostomy tube. Um, these are all the things that are important to consider as you're considering the best surgical intervention for stones, the size, the location, whether there's presence of infection or obstruction, um, and then anatomic considerations. Is it a solitary kidney? Of course, you're going to act quickly if a patient has an obstructing stone in a solitary kidney, but all these factors play into um, your decision. And the uh, AUA guidelines uh, really help specify all these things. Patient with a you know, five millimeter stone in the mid ureter, you can pretty much go through the AUA algorithm and help decide what the best treatment is. I think the most important message, um, and I, I have a patient, I'll give you a brief um, description of, you know, basically if somebody has ESWL and it fails, do not do another ESWL and then a third ESWL. I saw a patient last year who had had five ESWLs for a staghorn because she didn't want to come from another center down to Indianapolis for treatment and her right kidney is now non-functioning. 
So she has 3% function in that kidney. Um, basically that, that killed her kidney. So ESWL is not as benign um, as it once was considered to be. Um, also ESWL is not recommended on lower pole stones. They just fragment and then sit there. And ESWL is not recommended for really for stones over one centimeter. So I think these are the main, main things about current surgical um, considerations. So just in conclusion, kidney stones are preventable and you should offer counseling. You should be aware of comorbid <laughs> conditions associated with stones. We've talked about all the dietary changes that can be powerful in preventing stones. Um, and uh, the DASH diet is a very important and um, reasonable and um, effective diet that folks can follow for stone prevention. And then the guidelines available from the AUA on both medical management and surgical invention, uh, surgical management are extremely important and accessible and great references for all of us, whether we're managing patients surgically or medically. And this is my list of references. I welcome any questions or comments from um, the panel or from, I guess, the audience. Yeah, that was really great. Thank um, you. And audience, you're welcome to go ahead and put your comments in, your questions through the comment bar. Um, we'll kind of lead off with some questions that our experts have. I'm going to start off. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you would not want to restrict calcium on somebody? Yeah, so the theory is, and, and we don't, I don't think we really have, um, it's more, um, um, I guess, studies. Dr. Curran is probably the, the person who's done the most research on this. But the concept is if you have calcium oxalate stones, if oxalate is in your gut by itself, your gut will absorb the oxalate and then your kidneys excreted in the urine. So high dietary oxalate without calcium will be absorbed. If you can introduce calcium into the diet, the calcium and oxalate will bind in the gut and pass out of the gut in bound form. So if you have inadequate calcium, you're likely to have higher oxalate in the urine. So basically dietary calcium binds oxalate and prevents it from getting into the urine. I think I'd also heard something about if you decrease your calcium, you might start leaching it from the bone. Right. It's a good point. Right. So your body's going to mobilize. You have to maintain your serum calcium. Right. So if you have inadequate vitamin D or inadequate dietary calcium, your body's going to salvage it from somewhere to maintain your blood levels. That's a good point. Yep. And of course, patients who have had chronic hypercalciuria, I think it's also important to recognize, um, are also going to be probably pulling from their bone stores. And so they need calcium to support bone loss if it exists. Very good. John, you have any questions? I have a comment regarding ESWL. I just want to make sure the audience understands that ESW, ESWL currently is a lot safer than when it was first introduced back in the 1980s, but repeated ESWL to a, a single kidney with a large stone, that, that's probably not appropriate. Agree. Thanks when for that presentation. Yeah, when you talk about the ESWL, you're you're referring to early on the risk of fractured kidneys, et cetera. Is that what you're right? Back in the 1980s, when it was brought into the U.S. from Germany, uh, the focal zone or the the targeted area where the the area under which the energy is delivered was quite large. Back in the 1980s, with the HM HM3. Yeah. Uh, but now, nowadays, and that's part of the reason why we put the patient under anesthesia is because the focal zone is quite small. And when the patient's moving around just a little bit, you have to stop and then you have to restart 
And studies have shown that when you have a patient who's not completely sedated, the effectiveness of ESDBL is decreased versus someone who's sedated. And that's because the focal zone, partly because the focal zone is quite small nowadays compared to before. And that's why I haven't seen any renal loss or collateral injury around the kidney where the kidney was treated. I haven't seen that in forever. Yeah. With the more yeah modern, I think um, you know the, the the mechanism of action, as I understand it, is it causes um, a lot of vasoconstriction. So the more the more broad ESWL causes vasoconstriction, and that's you know not great for for kidneys. So thank you for clarifying that, Dr. Lin. I, Dr. Lingaman actually I think brought the first HM3 um, to the U.S. We used it until about five years ago, but we were able to to focus a little bit more. But I guess I think the main point is it it. it it is not an entirely benign treatment, I think, even now, as you mentioned. So repeat ESWL to a staghorn is just not ideal. It yeah. works, but you have to use it appropriately. Just like all the, all, the, all the ways that we can treat a kidney stone, you have to pick the right weapon. Of course. We had a question come through. Uh, when do you not treat a kidney stone? Yeah, so I mean, I definitely have patients with non-obstructing stones that are asymptomatic. You know, most stones that are in the kidney, people don't have any symptoms from. So, um, you know, if a patient has a stone that's bigger than six millimeters, um, you know, that might be a reason to at least have a conversation with them. Hey, if this moves, you know, you, you may not be able to pass it. So, I often think about people's lifestyles. Do you ever travel somewhere remote? You know, do you travel a lot somewhere that you might not have access to care? Um, but generally stones under six millimeters, um, I often will observe those if that's the patient's preference. Some patients want them out. And I think it's reasonable, especially um, if they have multiple stones, especially if a stone analysis would be helpful, you know, in guiding your treatment. There are lots of reasons to recommend treatment. Um, but I think for patients with non-obstructing asymptomatic stones under six millimeters, probably more of a patient choice. Thank you. We have another question come through here. From your experience, have you found that obese patients, meaning a BMI of greater than 40, are less likely to pass a distal ureteral stone due to the significant amount of adipose tissue? I do not know. It's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, Dr. Lin, do you have any thoughts on that? I have not seen any studies that specifically looked at, actually BMI greater than 40 will be morbid obesity or nor obesity associated with less likelihood of being able to pass a ureteral stone. Yeah, I mean, I think of adiposity as being flexible, I guess, you know, and, and I don't think adiposity is obstructive. I mean, we don't see patients develop hydronephrosis from obesity. So I don't, I, I don't think there's necessarily a correlation of, of that with the likelihood of passing a stone. Yeah. I don't know of any scientific evidence on that either. I had a question about, so stone surveillance. So let's say you've got a patient with a six millimeter stone or smaller that's non-obstructing mm -hmm. and they've got two working kidneys. Mm -hmm. What's your surveillance program? Is it like a renal ultrasound and an x-ray in six months or a year? I think it depends on how long we think it's been there or how actively we feel like they're forming. I would say, yes, six months to a year would be my um, usual protocol. Um, the advantage of leaving a stone in place as you're working with somebody on metabolic issues is if you've initiated a metabolic prevention plan with a thiazide diuretic or diet alone or what have you, um, 
and you get a follow-up study in a year and the stones are stable, that is evidence to you that your prevention measure is that, that, that your work it's working. You know, if they're not forming new stones and their existing stones are remaining stable, that's reassurance to you that your prevention plan is probably helpful. Um, so a KUB, if it can easily be seen, is great. I would say more commonly in my facility, we use low-dose CT of the abdomen because it can show both is there distension or hydronephrosis and give you a much more accurate depiction of small stones, two millimeter stones, one millimeter stones, nephrocalcinosis that would not necessarily show up on a KUB. Plus, um, with most of our patients being bigger, KUB is less helpful, right? Yeah. Because um, it just doesn't penetrate into the kidneys. And I would also just mention um, for the audience that uric acid stones, of course, don't show up well on KUB at all. So if we can get it authorized by an insurance, which is not always easy, um, our preference is to use low-dose CT. And I would say in a stable patient, I would go 12 to 24 months or even longer. I mean, I definitely have patients I've been following for six or eight years, and we kind of stop radiographic surveillance because things haven't changed. They're not passing stones. Um, that's how I handle it personally. Okay. And can you explain to the audience the difference between a CT with contrast, a CT without contrast, and why you would order one over the other? Absolutely. So um, uh, there really isn't a role for CT with contrast much in stone disease at all, unless you're ordering a urogram um, to determine if a stone is still in the ureter. So, so let's, let's talk about non-contrast CT first. So non-contrast CT scan shows stones beautifully. If you're just following a patient for stones or trying to assess whether somebody has stones, non-contrast CT scan of the abdomen only would be just the kidneys. Or if you think they have something in the ureter, you'd want to be doing abdomen and pelvis. Stones show up great on non-contrast CT scan. Um, contrasted CT is more commonly used for, you know, unexplained abdominal pain, checking for masses or tumors, something of that nature. Um, and often stones are found incidentally on um, contrasted CTs when a patient has shown up for an MVA or something like that, you know, or abdominal pain. Um, CT urogram, to be clear about that, um, CT urogram is a multi-phase CT where the contrast is excreted into the renal collecting system and ideally down both ureters. So you're opacifying the ureters. Um, in stone disease, that could be helpful. Occasionally you have patients with calcifications in the pelvis that are right next to the ureter. They're called phleboliths. And it can be sometimes difficult to distinguish if a calcification is in the ureter or adjacent to the ureter. And so a CT urogram, which is a contrasted study, could be helpful in delineating that not terribly common situation. The other thing I would mention, though, is that um, stones can sometimes be obscured by early excretion phases of a contrasted CT. So as the kidneys are excreting contrast into the collecting system, you might see something that looks like a stone, um, but that actually is, is not. So so contrasted CTs can sometimes obscure stones, not typically, but occasionally. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a quick question. Um, so you'd mentioned the uh, stone risk profile that you can do to kind of give you clues as to why this patient is, is, or is getting these stones. And then you do some type of intervention. Do you follow up with the repeat stone risk profile at some time to see how it worked or? Absolutely. So um, let's say I have a patient who is found to have hypercalciuria. 
on their 24-hour urine test, and we initiate a thiazide diuretic, such as chlorthalidone, that's usually my go-to, or endapamide. So those medications help you store calcium in the bones and tissues instead of excreting them in the urine. Um, I would usually initiate that medication, um, check a BMP in two to three weeks to check their serum potassium, make sure that that's not um, giving them hypokalemia. And then I usually repeat a urine test in about four to six weeks once the medication and or diet changes um, have had an opportunity. And, and the, the great thing about using um, a lab that does, you know, primarily stone risk um, testing is they will include your, you know, when you get your new report, you have your old results, even if they go back 10 or 15 years. And so you can really show a patient through the years, you know, how, how you've been managing, how their calcium has been managed by this medication. Um, extremely helpful. So absolutely, Vic, the follow-up studies are um, critical to ensuring that you're on the right course because a couple other things can happen. So for example, you know, again, if you've been following somebody for 10 or 15 years, things change for people, right? They get diabetes, their stone risk profile changes, their urine becomes more, more acid. So following people through the years with occasional 24-hour urine studies, especially if they're forming new stones, you'd want to circle back to the 24-hour urine tests and absolutely to make sure that um, the um, measures that you've implemented are along the right track, that you haven't over-alkalinized the urine with citrate. There are so many things that can kind of um, go wrong in a sense. And so those, I tell patients, look, I wouldn't put you on a blood pressure medication and not see you back to see if your blood pressure is better. Um, you know, this is chronic disease management and definitely requires follow-up. Very good. I'd like to throw this one out to the panel. Um, since I've been around for a while, I was pre-tamsulosin uh, and it was kind of, interesting how how when Flomax came along we started putting patients on it for stone passage we saw a significant change in the number of stone cases we had to take to the to the operating room what's your experience been uh andrea anybody who wants to chime in as far as have you seen the differences with or without the use of these drugs thank you um my primary patient look, uh, group is not the stone disease. I do see it. And I mean, obviously, we all see stones in urology, but I, I can't speak to whether I've seen a pattern with that or not. Oh, okay. Yeah. John? I have not seen any significant change shifting from no, no more ureteroscopy versus more ureteroscopy with uh, tamsulosin. But you know what? It gives people hope. It I know the data are kind of equivocal initially when Tamsulosin, that study came out, everybody's on the Tamsulosin bandwagon. ER started using it, but then further studies came out saying, well, it may not be as effective as initially thought. I still use it. I tell, explain to the patient that we're using it off-label, and this is a way to kind of relax, quote unquote, relax the ureter to allow greater chance of that stone in the ureter to pass. Commonly, oh it is given to patients with kidney stones. And I tell patients, no, you don't really need tamsulosin for kidney stones. Yeah. Uh, it, the ER is pretty good at, at giving that to patients, <laughs> but unfortunately that is not gonna work. And Christy, any comments? No, I agree with all that. It's like, why wouldn't you, in a sense, um, for a distal ureteral stone, as Dr. Lynn mentioned, and as I mentioned in my talk, you know, proximal ureteral stone, probably not gonna do much. So. Um, and then some patients, will, especially men, will be like, gosh, you know, 
uh, that Flomax really helped my stream, you know, so sometimes you identify that he had BPH and he kind of needed to be on Flomax anyway. So yeah. certainly appropriate to continue it. Yeah. Um, it, 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 and, and of course, if they can tolerate the orthostasis and things like that. Well, thankfully, tamsulosin is pretty good. Uh, minimal ortho orthostasis risk for the for the patient, for the for the patient taking tamsulosin. But I always remind the guys because I treat a lot of BPH as we all do. I always remind the guys retrograde ejaculation. Remember, retrograde ejaculation and also nasal congestion are two of the most uh, more common side effects. I have not, I, I haven't seen as much orthostasis with tamsulosin as with some of the older medications like you know. B for Hytrin and and uh, and the older medications for BPH. Yeah, there's some medications I know that can increase risk of kidney stones, um, such as Topamax. Can you speak to the other medications that might increase risk of stone formation? You know, some of the um, old um, antiretrovirals for HIV, like indinavir, I know those cause stones. I don't even know if indinavir is, you know, being used anymore. Um, to speak about Topamax briefly, I just want to mention kind of what the problem is with that. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because in some of my other talks, which are longer, I have a list of medications that, you know, can alert people. So um, Topamax is commonly used for um, migraines or seizures and it can cause a uh, metabolic alkalosis basically and can cause calcium phosphate stones to form. So if you have a patient with stones um, and they're on Topamax or Topiramate, do everything you can to get them off. But if you can't get them off that, absolutely make sure that you're managing hypercalciuria and hydration and whatever other you know risk factors in the urine um, that you can. I believe Lasix can um, also cause stones, but Andrea, did you have something else in mind? Mm -mm. In terms of medications? Um, no, nope. most, most, most of them are pretty obscure. I would say Topamax is definitely the thing I see the most that, that can be um, associated. Yeah, I believe triamterene has been implicated. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. I don't know what the mechanism is. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. And speaking of mechanisms, I think we talk about calcium oxalate, calcium phosphate, calcium this, calcium that, but I want to reiterate the point that you made is that decreasing calcium intake from the diet does not really decrease the risk of stone recurrence. And that is a common misconception among my patients. They come in and tell me I had a stone. Oh yeah, I cut down my on my milk intake. I'm like, no, you don't do don't do that. Yeah. It's gonna accelerate yeah. possibly your osteoporosis. So you, your cells need calcium, so don't cut down on your calcium intake. But uh, another point that you made that was really germane is that uh, how do you tell when a patient is drinking enough water? And he said to kind of watch the color of the urine. That's exactly what I tell my patients. Yeah. Yeah. I also just wanted to mention the population of people with osteoporosis. I think that's a really uh, important challenge, you know, in urology. Um, and generally speaking, you know, what I tell people who have been advised to take calcium supplements for osteoporosis is, first of all, use caltrate, right? Use calcium citrate. Mm -hmm. Take it with meals because it's going to be better absorbed. And if they're worried about stones, I just say, look, what's what's more difficult, a stone or a hip fracture? You know, you really have to sort of weigh the, the relative benefit or the relative risk. Um, obviously, having osteoporosis and a potential fracture is much worse than having a kidney stone. So, um, and if they, you know, if they have hypercalciuria and they have to take calcium supplements, that's a great place for a thiazide diuretic. 
you know, thiazide diuretics actually help improve bone health. So, um, you know, I have a patient, I just saw her this week. She's um, 55. She has a significant family history of osteoporosis and she has, she's had hypercalciuria probably for a long time, undiagnosed. Um, you know, that is somebody who a thiazide diuretic, which again, we didn't really have time to talk about today, can benefit both from the stone disease and help with their bone disease as well. Yeah. I think another great patient education piece is the salt and the sodium intake. A lot of times patients will be talking about stone prevention and reducing salt and they'll say, oh no, I, I don't use the salt shaker. I don't use oh, salt. Yeah. But most salt in the American diet doesn't come from the salt shaker. It comes from restaurant foods, fast foods, canned foods, packaged foods, sauces like ketchup and spaghetti sauce and teriyaki sauce, barbecue sauce. So I noticed that there's a lot of misinformation about that and it's a big opportunity to educate the patients, yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. You know, we have information sheets that we give patients on these matters. And the salt and sodium packet is like four pages double-sided, you know, because it, it's so insidious and people just don't realize. And when they start looking at packages, they're like, mind blown. You know, they just really can't believe. Um, and our diets are going more and more towards prepared, packaged, you know. So it's, it's uh, I, I, that is probably also the main thing that I refer patients to dietitians to work on is because um, it's, it's, a, it's really hard for people, especially if their whole family isn't committed to a low sodium diet to make those, those changes. Yeah, processed foods. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm wondering if going forward if, if we're gonna see a decrease in stone disease based on this liquid intake that everybody is increasing. So I was just out in Florida with my grandkids and they all got those Stanley cups because you know there was a big commercial about how this car had burned down and they got the stanley cup out of it and the ice was wasn't even melted <laughs> and so all my grandkids had the stanley cup and they're just drinking the water i'm like hey you know you, you can drink too much water yeah. but they certainly are focused on and they're all athletic you know they're, they're either in soccer gym or whatever um but they're hydrating much better than i can recall doing as a child so i, think I agree I see in, in my practice, so I treat a lot of overactive bladder as well. And I've seen quite a few patients come through recently complaining of urgency and frequency. And when we do a bladder diary, they're actually making five liters of urine a day because they're drinking so much water. And really when I ask them why, and they just say, well, I thought I, I should, I thought that was supposed to be good for you. And, and, it, and it is, but, but then you're gonna have to go to the bathroom frequently and urgently. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's not much overlap between those patients. I'm like, if you could come train my stone patients how to drink right. five liters a day, that would be great. But it doesn't work <laughs> and, out. And one last cautionary tale. I don't know if you read this story circulating in the news recently. Lucinda Mullins, a 41-year-old nurse, recently lost her both arms and legs from a septic stone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even though we think, oh, it's just a stone, it's painful. We can treat it ureteroscopically or shockwave lithotripsy. When ignored, it can become infected and cause grave consequences. Patients have died from an obstructing stone. Absolutely. I'm sure we've all seen those staghorn calculus patients that come in and you just, the whole kidney is just filled with stones. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's it always seems to be the extremes. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we didn't talk much about struvite stones, but I just think what's, ex what's most important about struvite stones is those patients must be rendered absolutely stone-free. Every little bit of stone and aggressive antibiotic prophylaxis um, is warranted. And of course, you would never lithotripsy a struvite stone. Um, you, you need to remove those um, and get them stone-free. It's a whole different ball of wax. That's because the struvite stone is usually an infection stone. That's right. And so if you take the stone and you crunch it up and you culture the stone, there's bacteria in the stone. And as soon as you, um, if you leave it in there, that stone will just, um, the bacteria are harbored by the stone. They will reinfect the urine and the stone will continue to grow. Wow. Great. We have a few comments here from the audience. Great. Uh, let me see if I can pull uh, Vic, are you able to pull those in for us? So we have a comment from Jessica who says, good morning from North Carolina, Duke Urology Stone Team. Hi, Jessica. All right. Hey, Jessica. Uh, from Karen, thank you. Very informative. From cold and snowy <laughs> central Minnesota. Minnesota. Sorry. No. We also have hello from Northern California. Internet spotty today, wondering mm. if she missed discussion regarding role of lemon juice in stone prevention. If so, what type of stones? Uh, good question, Monica. So, um, you know, lemon and other citrus fruits have citrate in them, right? And as we briefly talked about, citrate is one of the inhibitors um, of stones. And that can be used for really any kind of metabolic stone. Um, Maybe not, but maybe not calcium phosphate, but definitely uric acid stones and calcium oxalate can be inhibited. I, I guess the question would be, you know, how much lemon juice, um, you know, is required. There's actually evidence that orange juice has quite a bit of citrate. So like Minute Maid um, orange juice. So, yes, I think generally there's a lot of discussion in kind of the lay literature about lemon juice. Um, but I think this would be a patient that you might want to measure the citrate in their urine, if you could, with a 24-hour urine test, you know, before really recommending considerable ingestion of citrate. Although I always tell patients, if you like lemonade, you know, have at it. Include some of that in your total fluid intake um, if you enjoy it and if you can tolerate the calories. There's also some citrate in some of the um, artificially lemon, you know, like, um, I can't think of the name, I don't use it, but the water additives you know there's some evidence that somebody helped me <laughs> those little things that come in a tube those little things that come in crystal light crystal light exactly. right so the lemon crystal light has some some citrate in it but um i think just with all the products that are available out there just being alert to whether somebody really has hypocitraturia and definitely not recommending a lot of citrate for patients who already have an alkaline urine <laughs> That's great. Well, this has been a great discussion. I know we didn't cover everything there's possible to talk about with stones, but uh, I'm going to invite you on at another date to come in and give us more into the metabolic uh, uh, side of stones. That really uh, would be a big help. I would like to make a little note for our next uh, next week's show. Diane Newman's going to be joining us. She's oh, wow. going to be talking about the uh, um, holster kind of Hollister, not Holster, Hollister Continence Care Registry and how we can all get involved in that. Also, I'd like to make a plug for 1030, the Europatient podcast, new podcast that just started last week. It's still going. We'll uh, see everybody who wants to join us at 1030 and watch that. I'll be glad to talk to everyone then. Again, great 
great discussion. I really appreciate all of everybody's uh, help, all the experts. Christy, loved having you on. Hope you'll join us in the future again. Thank you, Vic. And with that, we'll see everybody next week. Thanks, Christy. Bye, Stay everybody. Stay warm and dry. Nice meeting you both, John and Andrea. Take care.